morning, everyone. If you are visiting with us this morning, we've been studying the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and this is the sixth week of our study. Uh, in short, this is our sixth week of reading other people's mail. If you remember, that's, that's the motto we've gone with here. Normally, reading other people's mail is a, a rude thing to do, but this is a bit unique in that this is Jesus' letters to the church, and he wants all the church to read these letters. And, and it's not just... Um, letters to the churches back then, but it's letters to us now here in Laguna Hills, 2021. Uh, the us, though, is not just us being the church here in Laguna Hills in 2021, but it's the us as in referring to all of God's people through all time in all nations in all languages and cultures. But this letter has even, even a further broader application to that. It's not just for us being Christians, us being God's people. It is for us being part of humanity. You see, the book of Revelation, like the entirety of the Bible, is a message to all of humanity, not just for Christians, but also for Buddhists, for Hindus, for Shintoists, for rationalists, for atheists, for materialists, for pluralists, scientists, artists, creationists, socialists, capitalists. It's for everyone. This is a message for all people. These are letters to humanity, to all of humanity, primarily because it comes from someone who is no longer in humanity, but as we'll read in a little bit, they come from the Holy One. That is to say, someone who's completely separate from us. They come from the true one. That is to say, someone who does not lie, someone who does not deceive, who does not mislead, who does not betray. They come from the authoritative one, which is to say, the one that has power over life and death itself. If you are a Christian, I hope our study of the letter to the church at Philadelphia is encouraging to you because it should remind you that the Lord knows his people and he loves his people. If you are not a Christian this morning and you are with us, we're, we're glad you are here. I hope you get an understanding of why we believe that God is such a good God even in the midst of living in a broken and difficult world. All that to say, it is not a rude thing we do in reading other people's mail because it turns out to be that this is mail for us as well. So as you, if you have a Bible, would you open up to Revelation chapter 3? We're going to be reading verses 7 through 13. If you need to use one of our pew Bibles, would you open up to page 966? It is a tradition here at our church, as in many churches, to stand when we corporately read the Word of God. So I want to invite you to stand so that you can follow along as I read the letter to the church of Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. 
Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, not the one in Pennsylvania, but the one in Asia Minor, founded by Attalus II of Pergamum, roughly around the 150s BC, out of loyalty to his brother Eumenes, hence the name uh, love for brother. That's what Philadelphia means. It comes from two Greek words, phileo adelphos, love of brother. Of the seven churches we've been looking at, the Church of Philadelphia is only one of two churches that receives only encouragement from God and not any other rebuke, the Church of Smyrna being the other. It's interesting to note that like Smyrna, the Church of Philadelphia suffered, has very little power, and was probably very small and rather insignificant in their city, yet they were faithful, they did not deny Christ, and they kept God's word. The question is, can they go on? They have little power, as we see there in verse 8, probably because they were very little in number. And we know enough by this time, we know enough about first century culture to know that if you are a Christian, that meant a couple things. Number one, you were part of a a marginalized minority, and that also meant almost in every case, economic disadvantage. Keeping faithful to Christ often meant being kept from the power structures of their society. If you've been in our study, you know very well what I'm talking about. Added to this, like in Smyrna, the church of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, were facing persecution by their former Jewish brothers for now proclaiming that Christ to be the new Israel and Christians to be the new people of God. And so you can imagine with all the economic disadvantage, being kept out of the power structures of society, being questioned, being viewed with suspicion. This morning I started looking at a book that, uh, called The Destroyer of Gods by Larry, Dr. Larry Cutardo out of University of Edinburgh. One of his books is entitled appropriately, Why Would Anyone Have Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Being, being a Christian was very countercultural in that time. There was no upside to being a Christian. There was no networking to be had if you were a Christian. There was only just downsides, apart from the promise of eternal life, of course. But in society, there were no upsides to being a Christian. So it's a very appropriately titled book. Now, obviously, the situation is very different in our culture today. We're no longer a minority. We certainly don't face economic disadvantage just for being a Christian. But being faithful to Christ, keeping the commands of Christ, living a godly lifestyle will always be a challenge and always full of difficult circumstances, regardless of the age or time you live in. And sometimes there may be enough challenges in your life to make you wonder, can I just keep going on? Can I get through? Can I do this? As Scott led us in prayer, he listed a variety of situations that many of us face, Difficulties at work, difficulties at school, difficulties at home. The challenges of just living life in a broken world. Can you make it? Can you get through? You may be asking yourself the same kind of questions the Philadelphian Christians ask themselves. So this morning, what I want to do is just highlight 
five encouraging words from the Lord to the believers who are faithful in Philadelphia, but wondering, can I get it? Can I make it through? Can I hang on? And I'll be honest, as I, as I was talking to the elders this morning, there, there's no real tight interconnected logic to this. As I read the passage and studied it this week, it just became very clear that it's a barrage of encouraging words to struggling Christians, and I felt that was appropriate for us as well. So this morning, we're just going to look at five encouraging words from the risen Lord to a struggling church, to a little church, and here's number one. Jesus promises the Philadelphian Christians that the door to life is open to you. Look at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. As we learned in our very beginning, our study, the very beginning of Revelation, every letter to the churches here in Revelations chapter 2 and 3 begins by drawing a characteristic uh, taken from the amazing vision of the risen Christ in chapter 1. And here we see it. He's quoting from chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, Behold, I died and am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Very interesting that Jesus would say that, because death is one of the most powerful forces humanity faces today, isn't it? Regardless of all of our technological advancement, for all of our achievements and progress and innovation, we are all helpless in the face of death. If you've ever had to face death, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've ever been with somebody who've had to face death, you know what I'm talking about. There's nothing you can do when death calls your number. There's nothing we can do to stop it. And yet, for Christ, it's as easy as opening or closing a door. Why does death pose no problem for Christ? Many of you know the answer to that, but I think Revelation chapter 3 fills out the image. Notice here in verse 7, he says, he has, he's the one that has the key of David. What is he referring to that? Now, if you know your Bibles, King David's reign was a time of strength and power and achievement. It was almost, almost the pinnacle, almost the zenith of God's people here on earth. King David's reign was a type, a prefiguring, if you will, of the reign of God all over humanity, a time of flourishing and prospering and success and peace and life. David's reign foreshadowed the reign of God where there would only be life. And so death poses no problem to the one who holds the key to the kingdom of life. But unlike our keys and doors, when Christ opens a door, there is no shutting it. And when Christ closes a door, there is no opening it. In fact, Christ not only has the key to those doors of death and life, in John 14, 6, he says, he is the door. If you're familiar with it, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Later in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. How encouraging to this church in Philadelphia, these early believers who surely were shut out of the synagogues, who surely those doors were closed to them, to their community, and Christ says to them, they may have closed those doors to you, but the door that I open to you is the one that truly matters. And the door that I open, no one can close. Friends, this is a way of point of application. Whatever door closes to you because of your faith and commitment to Christ, 
it pales in comparison to the door that Christ will open to you, and no one can close that door. And so Christ says to the Philadelphian church, I have opened the door to life to you. The world around you, they may be closing doors upon you because of me, but I am opening a great door that no one can shut. That's encouragement number one. Encouragement number two, we see that in verse nine. I said, the slander will be silenced. You'll know what I mean in a little bit. Let's look at verse nine. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. That phrase may sound very familiar to you, the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, and that's because that's almost the exact phrase we saw in chapter 2, verse 9 to the church of Smyrna. Look over chapter 2, verse 9 with me. It's the second half of it. And the Lord says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And so here, Jesus promises that the slander will be silenced. Now, you need to imagine here, this is where we use a little bit of a, a sanctified imagination, what's going on in the church in Philadelphia. You can almost imagine the things that the Jews are saying to these now Christian converts as they were cast out of the synagogues for saying that Christ is the new Israel. The people of God are no longer the the ethnic Jews, but all people, including the Gentiles. You can imagine what the Jews must have said to this young early church. You're not part of us. You are not of us any longer. God, Yahweh, doesn't love you. You're rejecting his people. You aren't his people. You have no place with us. You have no place with God. You have no place with Yahweh. You can imagine those are some of the things they were being told. You're not one of us. You don't belong. And if you've been here in our series, you know the challenges these early Christians had. They weren't Jews, and they didn't belong with the Jews, but they certainly weren't pagans, and they didn't belong with the pagans. And they felt often that they didn't fit in anywhere. But as we learn from our study of Esther, one of the gospel motifs all through Scripture is that the Lord is a reverser of fortunes, that God reverses the fortunes of his people. Look back at Revelation chapter 3. It's the second part of verse 9 where he says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So we imagine that probably some of the things they were being told was, you can't possibly be loved by God. You're not one of us. But Jesus turns their fortunes around. You see, Jesus here in verse 9, he is quoting directly, for you note takers, from Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah chapter 49, and Isaiah chapter 60, where in the prophet Isaiah, God, Yahweh, is speaking to Israel, the nation, and saying, one day your, your fortunes will reverse, and all the nations that oppress you, they will bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. It's really interesting that here in Revelation, Jesus himself is reinterpreting, he's modifying Isaiah's prophecy to the Jews, except Jesus flips it, doesn't he? Jesus is modifying this prophecy saying, the Jews will now bow down to the Christians and know that I have loved you. Well, what is going on here? I mean, does Jesus not know how to read the Old Testament? I mean, does he, it's clear that in the Old Testament, God's talking to the nation of Israel. So why does Jesus in the New Testament flip it around, and now he's applying this to Christians, and it's the Jews that are bowing down to them? Does Jesus not understand Old Testament here? Not hardly. 
what Jesus is saying is that his people have nothing to do with an ethnicity. His people have nothing to do with a nationality. And, and by the way, I'm so tempted, but I, I will restrain, and one day we'll probably get into it again, because this, I think, really addresses the concern of racism and nationalism in our world. Uh, the, the gospel is the only answer for a society that's being ripped to shreds because of either racism or nationalism. And here we have, at the core engine of it, God is calling a people, and he's making it very clear. It's not about your ethnicity, nor is it about your nationality. You see, the people of God are neither ethnic nor national. They are spiritual. And it's totally a different class altogether. Well, we're not going to get into that now. One day we will, though, because it's really important. So let me explain what I'm talking about here. For example, in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, this is what Paul says. But it's not as though, so let me back up, give you the context. I'm explaining why Jesus in Revelation 3 is reinterpreting what God says in Isaiah 45, 49, and 60. Okay, I'm, show, I'm reinterpreting. I'm, probably sh I'm showing you the theology that, I'm not sure if this was in Jesus' mind, but it's clearly revealed to us in Scripture. So that's what I'm trying to show you. Romans 9, 6. But it's not as though the Word of God has failed. Because here in Romans 9, Paul is talking about what's going on because the Jews as a nation are rejecting the gospel, yet Gentiles like crazy are coming to repentance and faith. So what he says is, it's not as though the word of God has failed, because that doesn't happen, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Look what he also says later on in the chapter, Romans 9, 24 to 26, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed God says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. One more time in Galatians 3, Paul's writing now to the churches in Galatia. Now the promises were made to Abraham. He's talking about the Old Testament, the covenant, all of that, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. Who's that? Well, it's Christ. Later on in the chapter, Paul says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So if you're paying attention, you might be asking yourself, Rick, Pastor Rick, are you saying that the church is the true Israel, that the church has replaced Israel? Are you saying God is done with his people, the Jews? No. What I'm saying is, what I believe the Bible is saying is, Jesus is the true Israel. It is not a matter of whether or not it's the Jews or the church. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Son of God. And God's people are those who are in Christ, regardless if you're a Jew or a Gentile. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you in Christ? Because Christ is the true Israel. Friends, after all, when you think of the New Testament, the primary thrust and theme of the New Testament is not primarily a history of the Hebrew nation, but it's the history of God's plan of redemption to reclaim all of humanity as realized through them. We don't study the Old Testament because we all happen to like Jewish culture and we want to you know, dance the Hava Nagila and all that. That's not why we do that. Although it is embedded in their culture, right? 
We study it because it is God's plan of redeeming humanity as it was realized through the Jewish nation. All right? So Jesus' point to the Philadelphian church is the point that was made to Old Testament Israel. You will be vindicated. Those who oppose you, they will be shown to be wrong. And furthermore, you don't have to make it happen. Did you notice here, Jesus says, I will make them come and bow down. He says that in the, God says, Yahweh says that in the Old Testament. Jesus says that in the New Testament. Friends, if you are a Christian, you do not have to defend yourself. You do not have to fight for your rights. You do not have to prove anything. In the end, all will become known because the one who holds the keys of the kingdom will make it right when he establishes his kingdom. Third word of encouragement, verse 10. Let's look back at the text. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Uh, Many people like to quote this verse as evidence that Christians will not endure the great tribulation. Uh, And I think maybe me saying that word gets some of you excited because you really want to get into the the juicy bits of Revelation and the great tribulation is one of that, right? You're happy to study God's messages to the churches, but we want to get into the crazy stuff of Revelation and the great tribulation is one of that. Unfortunately, uh, just a few weeks ago, somebody quoted this verse to me showing that Christians will not be part of the Great Tribulation. If you are new to Christianity or if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is kind of an intramural conversation, so give me a moment here. I don't think that's what verse 10 is referring to at all. Uh, The belief is that God, as we come to the end of all things, he will take the church out of the world and we won't have to endure persecution and suffering known as the Great Tribulation. And I get it. Who likes persecution and suffering? Who wants that? None of us, right? So it makes sense why people would read this where the Lord, where Jesus is saying, I will keep you from that hour. So it makes sense that God's going to take us away. Here's the problem, however. Persecution and suffering is exactly what we are promised as Christians, And I know that's not what Trinity Broadcasting Network or those false teachers on TV often teach. I know that's not what Joel Osteen tells you. You can have your best life now. But what I'm telling you is the Bible actually teaches that persecution and suffering suffering is what we can count on. Yeah, sign me up. I want to be a Christian right now. I, I get it. But isn't that true? That's what the Scripture teaches. Let's take a look. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when right? That's an indicative. It's, it's not if, it's when you meet trials of various kinds. A few verses later in the same chapter, blessed is the man who remains, or the woman who remains, steadfast under trial. The implication and assumption is what? That you are going to have trials. Now, you can say, well, I always interpret that as, you know, just problems with my boss, or problems in my family, or finances, or whatever it might be, and it's applicable. But the word trial has a broad application, the point I'm making is we're going to get trials. It's a guarantee. Look at 2 Timothy 1.8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I like this. Now, let's, let's look at this. We do share in suffering, but look how we do it. It's not by our own strength, right? 
we share in suffering for the gospel, but we do it by the power of God. Look on the next verse, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Share in suffering. How? As a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So twice we're told to share in suffering. And finally, in 2 Timothy 4, 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So we are told that we will have suffering, but according to 2 Timothy 3.12, we're also told all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, right? And this is just a few verses from the Bible that teaches us. Let's look at what Jesus has to say. In John 16.33, I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I mean, in each of these, we could unpack. This is dripping with such great truth. He says, in me, you'll have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. But he also says, in his high priestly prayer of John 17, when he's praying for you and I, notice what Jesus prays. Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So here, Jesus specifically prays that we don't get taken out of the world, that we actually stay part of the world. By the way, that's our role in the world, to be salt and light. He would not take us out of the world, but what he prays is we get kept from the evil one. So exactly what is being promised in verse 10? You feel like, well, I feel like I've got a bait and switch here. I thought Jesus was going to take us out of the world. We'd have to worry about the tribulation. What are we being kept from? What is being promised in verse 10? What's so encouraging about that? Friends, what we are being promised, what we're being encouraged with in Revelation 3.10 is so much more significant, friends, than that we will be spared any physical persecution or trials, but that we will be kept. The word kept also means guarded spiritually. Now, you might be feeling like, that sounds like the, the booby prize. I don't want to be kept spiritually. That doesn't, that doesn't, I want to be kept physically. And that's because we have a bizarre understanding of the word spiritual. If you've been at this church for a while, I've tried to change that. Remember, when the Bible talks about physical and spiritual, in our culture, when we hear physical, what do we think of? Right here, the material body. And when we think of spiritual, what do we think of? Kind of like Casper the ghost. Right? Some ambiguous, amorphous thing. And, and there's a place where that is true. There is a material reality and an immaterial reality. We are embodied souls. I am an embodied soul, right? You see my physical self, but you don't see me, right? You see, well, you see me, but there's me inside of me. You get it? Right? But when the Bible talks about it, the Bible has such a broader understanding of physical and spiritual, and this is where we have to understand. The Bible often refers to the physical as the temporal, as the facade, as the weak, as weakness. And the Bible talks about the spiritual as the eternal, as the reality, as strength. And so when the Bible, when you read in the scriptures the physical and the spiritual, and they're being compared, yes, it can refer to material and immaterial, but more often than not, the authors are trying to communicate reality from the facade, the temporal from the eternal, the weakness and strength. And so what we're being promised in Revelation 3.10 is that we are going to be kept spiritually is much more important than the fact that I will be kept safe physically. What the, Jesus is promising is that you will not fall away, you will not flee, you will not deny Christ. Why? Because it is Christ who will keep you. Friends, 
back to verse 10, this is the trial that is coming on those who dwell on the earth. You see that language right there in verse 10. This is the trial. The trial is this, and we see this played out all through the book of Revelation, starting at chapter 6. Chapter 6 through 18, I've taught you, is that middle chunk that we're getting to very soon. This is the main trial of all those chapters. Will you believe or won't you? Will you choose the one who has the keys to life and death or won't you? Will you endure or will you forsake? Will you follow the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or will you be deceived by the counterfeit trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet? Will you be part of the beautiful, pure bride of Christ? Or will you be part of the prostitute, the whore of Babylon? You see, we didn't talk about that yet. We're going to get into that. But all of Revelation is showing the parallel realities of life. Life in Christ, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're part of the bride. Or life in a world system that can only counterfeit the things of God with the unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, and you will be part of the prostitute, the whore of Babylon. That is the trial that is coming upon the whole world. Which side will you be a part of? The promise in verse 10 to the, the Philadelphian church, but Jesus says, I'll keep you from that. Just as in John 17, he prayed that the Father would keep us in the world, but from the evil one, to the Philadelphian church says, you guys, you've been through enough. You've suffered enough. I'm going to keep you from more suffering. So the reason I want to tease that out is that, that's a great intellectual debate, but sometimes we miss the true encouragement of what's happening here in verse 10. And that is this. God knows how much suffering his people can take. God knows how much you can handle. Friends, compare and contrast. By the way, it's very instructive. The two churches that Jesus only says, you're doing great, I love you, are Smyrna and Philadelphia. And both of those churches were small and suffering and, 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 and insignificant in the world. And the churches that were more powerful and well-known, like, so for example, Ephesus, he had rebuke for, actually stern rebuke. Churches that were very wealthy, like Laodicea, we'll get to next week, they got a harsh rebuke. There's something very instructive in that in and of itself, in a world where we define success all by metrics that we can feel and see and touch. But what Jesus says to them, in, in contrasting to the Smyrna church, you remember in, in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, to the Smyrna church, you've been through a lot, but I've got more coming. There's more tribulation on the way. You'll have, you'll be, there's imprisonment coming, right? Ten days of tribulation. But to the Philadelphian church, he says, no more. No more's coming. What's the difference? Christ knows. He knows what the Smyrna Christians, the church of Smyrna can handle. He knows what the church at Philadelphia can handle. He knows how much is too much. Friends, let me ask you this question. Have you ever thought that your suffering is the evidence of God's confidence in your spiritual strength? Have you ever given consideration to the fact that your suffering is the evidence of God's confidence of your spiritual strength? Because anyone can testify to the goodness of God when life is always pushing up roses. That doesn't require much faith. But to give witness to his goodness when it's not personally experienced, 
that confounds the world. And by the way, that kind of witness also rebukes the world, doesn't it? How so? This way. Because it testifies that true life is not dependent upon material wealth, situational happiness, or earthly pleasures, but something much more substantial and secure. Think of Matthew chapter 6, verse 18, right? The, the Beatitudes. Jesus says, um, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So Jesus is into treasures. He wants his people to have treasures. As a matter of fact, John Piper's concept of Christian hedonism is really makes a lot of sense. Jesus wants you to go for your rewards. Jesus wants you to build up treasures, but he wants you to put them where they're going to last. It's not that Jesus is against treasures. He says, but put, them, put your treasures where thieves can't break in and steal, where moths don't come in and rust destroys. Lay up treasures where they're going to last for eternity. Friends, nothing exposes the, the shallow facade of this world than to meet someone who suffers well. And the Smyrna Christians, the Philadelphian Christians, were suffering well. To the Smyrna Christians, Jesus said, I got more for you because you can handle it. But to the Philadelphian Christians, he said, you've been through enough. God knows how much you can endure. Friends, he will not give you any more or less than what you can handle. And when he brings difficulty in your life, we so often take that to mean God doesn't love me. Have you ever given consideration to the fact that God says you can handle this and I want you to be a witness, so I'm bringing some more? I know that's not the way we'd like to receive love from God but is a witness to the world nonetheless. Encouragement number four, verse 11. The wait will not be long. Look at verse 11 where Jesus says, I am coming soon. By the way, this is the same way this book actually ends three times in chapter 22 of Revelation. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. I am coming soon. It makes sense that this, whole, this would be how the entire book of Revelation ends because the book of Revelation itself is a whole book that reveals that the Christian church, the Christian life is one of struggle, challenge, and endurance. So we need to be reminded of these things that he is coming and it won't always be this way. In my um, early 20s, I used to make my living driving a forklift. That's what I did for a living. I was a lift operator, and occasionally the, the, we wouldn't have trucks to load or unload. And so me and the other lift operators were given the, the very hard job of, of basically book stacking and shrink wrapping. We get space in the, the corner of the warehouse with literally tons of books and, and videos, and our job was to shove them into canvas bags and stage them on large pallets about six or eight feet tall. And it was grueling, monotonous work. And after two hours of working in book, book stuffing and shrink wrapping, I'd look at my watch and realize, oh, it's been 20 minutes. You guys have had jobs like that, right? And, and, and now, mind you, that's not real suffering of any sort. My, my point, I guess I'm getting at, is this. When we are enduring things we don't enjoy, time moves really slowly, doesn't it? It just seems to drag on forever. When we are enduring difficulty or things that we just don't appreciate, we always we're clock watching. The irony is the other time we clock watch and we tend to watch time is when we're anticipating joy. When you're about to go on your vacation, you're counting the days. Your wedding date, right? Uh, Christmas morning, graduation, the due date. We're watching every hour of every day. 
When we are struggling and when we anticipate joy, we tend to watch the time, right? And Jesus says, it won't be long. And, and, and what I love about the way Jesus says that, it is both in enduring suffering and anticipating joy that Jesus says, I am coming soon. And I think this is really important. I was thinking about it this morning. I, I wrote some notes here. Um, I think both of those realities in the Christian faith, we have to see how they work well together, both enduring difficulty and anticipating joy. If we just focus on the difficulty of life, and there are some Christians who do that. You're just always trying to grind it out because I, I got to endure and one day it will get better and I'm just grinding it out now. The focus, we, we can become bitter. Uh, we can give up. We can give into despair. There's no real witness to the world about the power of the gospel, is there? On the other side, though, if we're always focused on the joy that can be ours in Christ and we kind of tend to ignore or downplay the real difficulties of life, what we communicate to the world is that our faith doesn't actually intersect with reality, right? That, that we have this kind of saccharine kind of Christianity. It's all fluff, and, and it doesn't really intersect with the real pain and struggle of this world, and that itself is no real witness to the world. And it occurs to me that Christianity is one of the few worldviews, if only that I can imagine, that has a purpose for our suffering that is redemptive, but also a real joy we look to. In other words, an authentic joy in the midst of genuine hardship. We can do that because we have the resources for that. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us exactly when he's coming. We don't know, but he says it's soon. It's going to be soon. And that might be when, when Jesus comes for you at your death, or it might be when Jesus comes to wind up history. But it won't be long. Now, I know if you're in your 20s, you're like, what? He could come for me in my death, and you're saying that's not long? It's not. Ask any saint in their 70s and their 80s, how, how fast is life? As a pastor, I get the pleasure of, of talking to a lot of people at the end of life. And, and it's a joy, because so often they're, they're godly saints, and I'll ask them, how quick was it? They were 18 a blink ago. Now they're 88. It goes quick. It won't be long. Last one, as I said, there's, there's not a, a tight logic to these things. I just kind of hope you feel the cumulative impact of Jesus saying, the door to life is open to you. Your life of faith is going to be vindicated. I will keep you and it will not be long. Finally, the last one here, your future is forever good. Look at verse 12. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. What a reassuring promise to a church with little power and little strength. You will be a pillar, the picture of strength and support and stability. You who've been thrown out of your communities, you have been thrown out even of your families because of your faith in me, you will be a permanent fixture in my temple. Friends, that, that, I don't know if you picked up on it, but that was the feeling behind the reading of Psalm 84 this morning. The idea of the joy of being in the very presence of God, where being just one day in his presence is worth a thousand anywhere. And I would rather be a doorkeeper just, just to be in the presence of God. And I thought, how beautiful that in the Old Testament, this, this love to be in the presence of God, 
that just one day is like a thousand, and I'll be a doorkeeper. And how Jesus, again, modifies that in the New Testament. He says, no, 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 no. You're not just going to be a doorkeeper, because by the way, if you know, doorkeepers eventually, what? Got to go home. He says, no, 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 no. You're not just going to be a doorkeeper. You're going to be a pillar. And it's not just one day, even if, it's not just one day, you get to be part of the architecture itself. You are a pillar of, by contrast. You never leave. And that's not a prison sentence. That is a promise. The most wonderful place you could ever be. And you never have to leave. Think of it, friends. What is that place for you? What is the most wonderful place you could ever be? And you never have to leave. In fact, you're part of the very structure itself, Jesus says. You are a pillar. You belong. So much so, the evidence, he says, I'm going to put my name on you. Notice that at the end of verse 12, in the middle part of verse 12. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. And notice three times, Jesus talks about writing his name on us. That is, by the way, we all know this too, it's a symbol of affection and the simultaneously a symbol of ownership, isn't it? It's, it's kind of like when, when donors give to a build, big building project, what do you often see? You see a wall with their names on it. They were an integral part of what took place. And there's something dignified about that and, and, and impressive about that and, and regal about that. But you know what I also like to think? How about when we were kids, what do we do with our favorite dolls or action figures if you're a guy? Action figures, dolls if you're a girl, action figures if you're a guy, what do we do? We just write our names right on the bottom of it because it is a sign of ownership, but it's also a sign of affection. In the way that a, a child scribbles their name, I guess Andy would have written his name on Woody's boot. Jesus says, I'm going to write my name on you. As a, as a man will tattoo his wife's name or mother's name upon himself as a sign of affection. I know some of you have done that. I know. Tim, you got that, right? Tim, look at Tim's finger. He's got his wife's name tattooed as a sign of affection and permanence and testimony that he keeps losing his wedding ring, right? So, <laughs> but it's the same thing that the world might know I'm owned by Michelle and my heart is Michelle's. Jesus says, you're a pillar, and my name is going to be on it as a sign of stability, permanence, affection. Friends, as we're wrapping up our study of the seven churches, next week will be the last one, the church of Laodicea. It's hard not to ask which church we might be like, isn't it? It's hard not to ask which church you might be like. I hope you're more like Smyrna. I hope you're more like... Um, some of these other churches, I hope you're not like maybe Laodicea, we'll talk about that next week, but there's a good chance you may be like Philadelphia, wondering if you can go on, wondering if you can get through. Friends, the encouragement from God's word to you is this, the, the door to eternal life is bolted open to you, that, that you, your faith, your love for Christ will be vindicated one day before all to see that God knows you and will keep you. The wait isn't long, and your future is forever good and beautiful. When we ask ourselves, what, 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 what does he require of us? And you look at verse 11, it's just one thing. Just, just hold on a little longer. Just endure. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this study of these six churches, next week being the last, has the range of our Christian experience from victory and struggle to joy and defeat and everything in between. And Father, there's a good chance that we're a lot like the Philadelphian church. Lord, I know many of my brothers and sisters are faithful, have kept your word and do not deny Christ, but living in a fallen world is hard. And Father, the encouragement we need is not so often the encouragement um, we might think, but as we look to your word, being reminded that the door to life has been bolted open and it is sealed by the blood of Christ, that you know us that you will vindicate us. Any sacrifice, any commitment, anything we have lost in this world, you will richly provide. You are no man's debtor. You will provide back to us. You know what we can handle. You know what we can't. And Father, our future with you is good. Help us to wait, to wait well. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.